Welcome back to the Grief Observed podcast. I'm Brad Morell, your host. And if you want to be on the podcast to tell your story of grief, please contact me at griefobservedpodcast at gmail.com. I'll have the email in the show description. Um, today, I have guest Sheena with me, and she wants to talk about um, a loss from several years ago. And it's the loss of uh, someone close to her. I will bring her on and we will just start talking about it. Sheena, thank you so much for being here with me. Oh, my pleasure, uh, Brad. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So why don't you tell everybody a little bit about you first? Um, so my name's Sheena. Um, I've been, um, um, I live in Texas. I've been, gosh, a resident here for a little over 20 years now. Um, although I've bounced around the country, um, all over the place. Um, I'm a mom to two little boys, um, young little boys. And, um, I recently joined, um, Tears from Heaven, um, a grief group. Um, on Facebook. And that's kind of how I, I met you, Brad. And and I posted recently about um, my grief and um, got several responses from people, which was very nice and comforting. Um, and I've responded to others as well, um, just because I know what that process is like, especially fresh in the beginning, even though I'm several years into my path now, I, I remember when it was so fresh and raw. So I try to give support when I can. Yeah, I think a lot of people go out to Facebook and other social media forums. You know, a lot of times I, I say our friends and our family, you know, a lot of times they will tell us what they want us to hear or what they yes. think is best for us. Um, and that's not always a good thing. So I, I think people going out and investigating what they can find out on social networks, just like this uh, Tears from Heaven group on Facebook, um, right. you know, and finding people who, you know, Every loss is unique, but, you know, we can find people who have had a similar loss in life and just see what do they feel like? Where, you know, are they ahead of us in the grieving process? Um, do they have tips and tricks that can help us? Because even though I'm a therapist, I do believe there's lots of validity out in the world of, of people who have gone through it. And sometimes going through something may be actually worth more than book smarts. So oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm glad you found a group that you can connect with others and, and just really find hope in this grieving process. Absolutely. And ironically, my degrees in psychology, um, my bachelor's, I, I didn't pursue it all the way, um, which one day I might, um, I I'm kind of in the corporate world now. I'm a chief of staff. Um, that's the path I chose, but psychology, you know, it's still very much part of my life because the the industry that I'm in, it is driven by mental health and, and behavioral health. So I try to keep my toe in it at all times. And um, given my education, though, I have a lot of self-awareness. And so when I I kind of was feeling my grief one day, that's kind of what prompted me to seek out the group. And I just was like, I'm having such a hard time with this. Um, you know, I, I I need to reach out to others, you know, and, and that's what prompted me to join the group. So yeah. Well, I'll encourage you. It's it's never too late to uh, get your degree. I, I was 42 when I finished up all of my schoolwork. Good so, for you. Yeah. That's incredible. 
Yeah, it's uh that you know, I always say as long as you're breathing, then you've got time to reach your dreams. So Absolutely. Absolutely. And I don't even know that this was a dream of mine. I I honestly, you know, 20 years ago, I I really doubt I would have said I'm going to be a therapist someday. So <laughs> There's Well, time. you've been easy, you've been easy to talk to so far. So, I'd good, say good. you chose you chose the right path. <laughs> yeah, I always tell my clients like I'm not the therapist you see on TV, you know, if you want to lay yeah. on my couch and tell me about your dreams and all that, go ahead, but that's not me. <laughs> <laughs> so, I like trying to be easy and, and down to earth and not over talk people and um, use a lot of psychological jargons. You know, it's I think people connect with people who are real. That's what I try Absolutely. to be. Absolutely. Well, Sheena, let's talk a little bit about your loss. Why don't you kind of talk about uh, Chris and, and tell tell everybody your connection with him and, and a little bit sure. about who he was. Let's honor who he was. Um, yes. So we met in high school. Um, I had moved to a new high school my sophomore year and a very small school out in uh, Grandview, Texas. A lot of people don't even know where that is. Um, it's about 40 miles south of Fort Worth, um, out towards uh, going towards Waco. Um, my graduating class was about 42 people. Yeah, about 42 people. So very, very wow. small. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a 2A school. I'm sure it's grown a lot since then. Um, Chris was a grade higher than me. Um, and we had just kind of met passing each other in the hall, um, hadn't really spent a lot of time together or anything. Um, but, um, I was friends with a girl that was in the same grade as him. And she had just approached me one day and said, you know, Hey, I think Chris has a little crush on you. Um, would you want to go on like a group date sometime? And I said, sure. You know, why, why not? I had this, I had never been on a date or any of that. Um, so being, you know, new to this whole thing, I kind of didn't know what to think, but said, sure, why not? And, um, you know, that kind of just started everything from there. Um, so I went on this group date, had a good time. And um, we we latched on to each other pretty quickly, um, Chris and I did. Um, I think, which is what most teenagers do, right? Um, they, things just are very dramatic at that age, right? You're so in love and so attached and, and everything at that age, which I, I know in this day and age, you know, people, well, you know, that, that can kind of tend to be a red flag and, oh, trauma bonds and, and, and all that. But it, it just wasn't like that for us, even though we both, we both did come from pretty traumatic childhoods, which I think is part of the reason why things moved so quickly. And we did um, kind of latch on to each other so quickly. I think we were looking for that support system um, within each other um, that we, you know, was kind of missing from a lot of our childhood. But, um, you know, there was never anything toxic or unhealthy about it. Um, you know, we were very... our our relationship was very giving and kind and supportive and, and healthy. We, we didn't have anything that was um, unhealthy or toxic in any way. Um, him as a person, um, just he was the kind of person that 
Um, he's really goofy, really silly, didn't take life too seriously. But I will say when I met him, he was 16. He was just one of those people that, you know, we always say, oh, they're so nice. They're so kind. Describing Chris, it was an understatement. Um, he was one of those people that, you know, when they say they were too good to be here on earth or I'm not, I'm not highly religious by any means. Um, but you know, God called one of his angels home or you hear that term a lot. Mm -hmm. In this case, it was 100% true. Um, they're just, sorry. <laughs> There just wasn't an evil bone in his body. Um, he was a very giving person. I remember there was an instance we, uh, again, 15, 16 years old, we'd stopped at a gas station and uh, he got out of his car to put gas in his car. And on the other side of us was a young woman and uh, she had a little baby with her. She had gotten out on her side and she was scrambling through her purse um, trying to find, you know, I guess just enough money to put some kind of gas in her car, you know, whatever she had. And you could tell that she wasn't, you know, probably in the best financial situation. You know, her car was kind of beat up. Her clothes were a little rough and, you know, she was scrambling for whatever money she had. And, um, she scraped together whatever she had, went inside with her baby. And Chris, just without saying anything, got up, walked over to the other, other side put his debit card in and just put the gas in our car mm. and put the gas in and just, we left. And how many 16 year olds, you know, that would do that, you know, None. <laughs> um, not many, not That's many for sure. Yeah. Most 16 year olds are pretty selfish. Um, he would do things like that all the time, constantly. Um, he was always putting everyone first, everyone, his own family, his own friends. Um, yeah. So it wasn't a loss just as my partner, as the love of my life. It was a loss. It was a loss to humanity. We just lost it. We lost a good person that this world needed. Hmm. Um, so. Yeah, devastating, but. You know, you talk about love um, from high school years and, you know, you're, you're, I think you said about 20 years removed from the loss of Chris at this point. How do you think love, you know, not even just thinking about him personally, but like how has your thoughts about love changed across that time? And, I guess my point is, I think so often we discount what love is from those high school days, but yeah. I think there's some legitimate pieces of, uh, I don't know, validity to that, you know, that, that we do what we do feel in those years is legitimate. Absolutely. Right. Um, well, I mean, if you think about it, for a lot of people, it's their first experience, right? Whether people want to believe it or not, you know, puppy love or summer love or first love, you know, a lot of people don't. Well, when people ask me, oh, your fiance, well, how old were you? Oh, you know, when I met him, I was 15. You don't see them roll their eyes, but you can feel it, mm -hmm. you know, 
Well, when he passed, I was 19. I was 18. Well, was he really your fiance? Yeah. I mean, he, he had proposed. There was a plan to get married. It was at a very young age, but there was a plan. I mean, he was, he was looking at rings with his friend at that point. It was a very, it was a commitment and it was done. Um, you know, for me, it was serious. There was a plan for us to spend the rest of our lives together. And, and I don't think people realize, you know, it, it may be your first experience for some people and, and, you know, we don't take it seriously, but it, it kind of sets the bar for some people for how the rest of their relationships are going to go. Right. It, mm -hmm. it sets the bar. It sets expectations. It, it drives what you seek in your future partners going forward. You know, what, how you pick your future partners, the experiences you have at that age affect what kind of partners you're going to choose and, and your experiences going forward, whether they're positive or negative, you know, yeah. um, that, that leads into something. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard the, the term disenfranchised grief, but yeah. it certainly plays into that, you know, that this loss is less significant than someone else's. And just like you stated, um, there wasn't a ring there. Well, you know, I, I was engaged to a girl when I went off to the Navy and there wasn't a ring. Does that make it, you know, illegitimate, you know, it's, uh, that's, I don't think there has to be a ring to state. I love you. Right. It's, no. and that's what you're stating here. But unfortunately, a lot of people look at it like, okay, you're young, you know, you still have time. There's, you know, and I think those are some of the worst things that you can say to someone that's gone through oh, loss. You know, it's, uh, I, I've talked about that with other women on here about miscarriage, you know, that people will say, well, you've got time to have another kid. And I'm like, well, you know, would you tell me if I lost my 21 year old daughter, would you tell me that it's okay and I can have another kid? No, that's, that is completely awesome. wrong. Right. And, and I think it's the same thing here, even though you experience love, at a young age, it doesn't mean it wasn't real love. You know, just because you experience loss of someone you love early on doesn't mean that it's replaceable. So, right. Oh, I and, and I completely agree. And that's all I heard. That's all I heard when, when I lost, you know, and, and just that term period, you know, I'm so sorry for your loss. He's not lost. You know, I didn't lose him. He's not a puppy. He's not a dog. You know, there's not missing posters up for him, you know, and there's a reward when we find him. I didn't lose him. He's gone. Mm -hmm. He's gone. He's never coming back. You know, I just remember even hearing that. I just, it, it was hard to even hear that. But yeah, you know, you're young. You'll meet someone else one day. You know, you're only 20 years old, you know, and it's just, Sometimes it just was better to not hear anything at all. Mm. Just, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry this horrible thing happened to you. And that's it. That's all I wanted to hear. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't want to hear, you, you know, you'll meet someone else or, you know, God has a plan. Oh, my favorite. You know, when he closes the door, he opens a window or you know, mm -hmm. there's so many cliche things that people say. And, and, and I keep stating, I'm going to write a book someday of <laughs> the hundred worst things heard at a funeral. I think and, we need it. 
Yeah, need it for sure. And I'm sure a hundred would just scratch the surface. Like right. I, maybe I do need to start keeping up with this and print that soon. Cause it, it's, I don't know. I hear just so much and, and I know people mean well. And, but it's like, if we can all agree that these things are horrible, why do people keep saying them over and over and over? I don't know. I think it's, it's just discomfort and not being able to empathize and connect. And, you know, they just kind of in the moment, maybe don't know what to say. I'm not sure, but you know, maybe it's, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's like throwing just, a Kleenex on a bonfire. You know? <laughs> right. It's not working. It's not exactly. Um, but yeah, I agree with you for sure. Well, I'm going to ask you a difficult question, even though I probably told you I wouldn't. That's okay. <laughs> no, I, I'm good. Like I said, I'm emotional, but I'm, I'm, I'm very emotional. Um, I'm uh, wear my heart on my sleeve kind of person, but I'm very open. I'll, I'll answer pretty much anything. Well, this one's more to the emotional side, I imagine, but what's one of your favorite memories with Chris? Favorite memories. Gosh, there's a lot of them. Um, okay, I'll pick this one. And I'm going to pick this one for the sake of my sister, too, just because he was like a big brother to her. He adored my younger sister and she adored him. God. Um, anyways, no, happy, happy, happy. Sorry. So, um, we went on a cruise, my family and, um, Chris was a part of the family at that point. Um, I mean, he was over every day, um, after college or after college, sorry, after high school, he was still trying to figure out what he was going to do. Um, he was into cars. He was a mechanic. Um, he had gone to, so our school was so small that it kind of did one of those crossover programs where, you can start the last two years of your of your um, education to bridge into something like mechanics or mm -hmm. being a hairstylist or whatever. So he had bridged over into like mechanics, but he didn't want to be a mechanic. He wanted to do more like designing the bodywork of vehicles. And so, but he didn't really have a lot of confidence in himself because his family never gave him that support and that confidence. So I was the one that was kind of pushing him, you know, no, you're going to do this. You're, this is what you want to do. You're going to do it. I mean, I was looking at brochures at, at schools for him, at trade schools and bringing them home and forcing him to fill out, you know, we're going to fill out this application. You're going to go. We're going to make this happen. And um, sadly, before he could actually attend, that's when he passed. But um, he was working for my stepfather. Um as a pool chemical technician, my stepfather had owned his own pool business. Um, so Chris was going around to swimming pools and, you know, basically, um, you know, putting the chemicals in to keep the, the uh, pHs and all that balanced, which is how he passed. But we'll get into that in a minute. So he became part of the family when he was done with his routes, he'd come, he'd come hang out with my mom, you know, when I was still in, in school um, or spend time with my dad. Um, it, it, it wasn't an abnormal thing for me. So, uh, he was very close to my sister. So we went on a cruise and of course we took Chris with us and me, Chris, and my sister all bunked in the same room. Um, you know, most cruises have like the little bunk beds and he loved playing pranks on my sister, just like little jokes on her. Loved it. I mean, just little tiny things, you know, and, um, 
she had gotten up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and I didn't know he was awake, um, but he was awake. And so, you know, um, I was sleeping on the top bunk and he was sleeping underneath. So he kind of kicks the bunk and I was like, what? He goes, Hey, Hey, Danny just went to the bathroom. And I said, yeah, I know. He goes, okay. He goes, get up, get up. And I said, all right, what? So he takes the ladder off of the bunk. Cause you could remove the ladder and went and like jammed it under the door handle while she was in there <laughs> so that she couldn't get out. Um, cause she, the poor girl's like half asleep, right. Trying to go to the bathroom. And he like, he recorded our whole cruise. And so he busts out like the little video camera and he's recording himself, like propping this ladder under there so that she can't open the handle and get out. And he's just laughing and laughing. He just thought it was the funniest thing ever. And you can hear her on the other side, like trying to open the door and she's just trying to figure out what's going on. You know, I like, I'm going to the bathroom. It's not locked. Everyone's asleep. Like what's happened? She literally can't open the door. And it, she doesn't say anything for a good few minutes. You'd think she'd be panicking. She, but time, you know, she's just trying to figure it out. Finally, she kind of starts, Hey, you guys, I'm stuck in here. And <laughs> the whole thing was just funny. It was one of those things you got to be there, but just his laughter from that moment, he just, it just made him so happy, you mm. know, that, and it made me happy that he had this little relationship with her, you know, and he finally let her out and she's like, you know, cursing at him and, and, you know, playfully yelling at him and, you know, I can't stand you and, you know, I'm going to get you back. And that was probably one of my favorite moments. He just, he used to love to, to do little pranks like that on people he cared about. So nice. that was probably my favorite. Very cool. And I wish, Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about what happened and how you dealt with the loss early on. Um, okay, Brad, this is going to be tough, um, but we're going to get through it because it's healing for me also. Um, so again, we were young. It was over the summer. Um, I had just graduated high school, um, had already been accepted in college at Texas Women's University. I was working at a grocery store for my summer job and he was on his normal pool route, um, which he started pretty early about 5 a.m. And I knew that um, he, you know, he would stay at our house a lot, you know, just hanging out with me and my sister and we would just fall asleep watching TV. Honestly, sometimes all three of us on the same big, huge bed, just watching TV and that's what had happened the night before. I kept telling him, you need to go home. You need to go home. You have to get up early. No, no, you know, just let, we'll finish this episode and then I'll go. And um, I said, all right, fine. We must have fallen asleep pretty late. Um, and then I guess he had just woken up and left um, and didn't wake me, just left. And um, so I went to work. I had noticed he wasn't responding to any of my messages, which was a little abnormal, but I didn't think that much into it. I thought maybe he's just busy or he's in an area where he's not getting good service. You know, this being 20 years ago, cell phones weren't what they are now. There were no smartphones or anything. You, you didn't get the pretty little, you know, read or delivered that you get now. Um, so I didn't think anything of it, but then 
Then around two o'clock, I got a phone call. Chris has been in an accident and it's bad. So I left and um, we didn't have much information. Um, I went home. My mom had, my mom was the one that had gotten the call and then she had called me. Um, so we went straight to the hospital. I can't, I honest to God, can't even tell you what hospital it was. Everything happened so quickly. I don't even know what hospital we drove to. I don't know where it was. I don't, the accident was towards Waco or it was, it was published in, in the newspapers. It was so bad because they had to shut down the highway for hours. Um, but they had care flighted him. Um, I want to say it was probably Fort Worth. Um, anyway, so we got there and all I was told was he hit an 18 wheeler. That was it. Hmm. He hit an 18 wheeler. This is all we know right now. So by the time I'd gotten there, we'd gotten more information. He hit an 18 wheeler and it wasn't the impact. He was still alive, but in very, very, very bad critical condition. On a scale of one to 10, 10 being the worst, we're like at a 9.5. If he makes it through the night, we think he'll be okay. But they did not think he was going to make it three more hours. Um, but they had said what had happened. Um, they don't know how he hit the 18-wheeler. They were speculating that he had fallen asleep at the wheel. Um, and when he had hit the 18-wheeler, the impact was so hard. He was in a pickup truck that the impact when it happened, the chemicals that were in the bed of the truck had burst through the back glass of the window of the truck. When And then when those chemicals combined, he was carrying hydrochloric acid and chlorine, which are very deadly on their own. But when you combine them, they're very toxic. And um, he inhaled a lot of those fumes and of course, they got all over his body and they burned his skin. And um, just inhaling the fumes is what was so deadly. By the time they got to him, they had pulled him out of the truck. They had stripped him down. They had washed him off as best as they could. Um, but inhaling the fumes was really bad. It was to the point where his organs were so swollen that they literally had to cut him open and lay his organs outside of his body because they couldn't fit inside him anymore. Mm -hmm. um, by the time I got to see him, he was not recognizable. He was unconscious and he just wasn't recognizable. The burns, the chemical burns were so bad. His face was swollen, he was bloody, he was cut up. And the burns were just, he would have never looked the same. Um, 
his whole body was swollen. That's what I remember. Cause he was, he, he was a tall guy. He was like six foot two, six foot three, but in great shape because of his job. Um, you know, he was very athletic. Um, so he wasn't overweight or anything. He was in great health, but I just remember how massive he looked and it was just because of the swelling of everything. And I just remember going in there and just seeing him like that and just, you know, just crying and begging him to hang on. And, um, you know, so I decided, you know, I, I told my mom, I said, well, you know, I'm obviously going to stay here. Um, and then my mom said, well, you know, why don't we run and like grab pillows or a blanket or something next door? I think there was a target next door. And so we left for a second and came back and um, we were coming up the elevator and coming up the elevator. It's still a sound that haunts me till this day. I could hear, I could hear his mother screaming as the elevator was moving up. And I just knew, I knew what that sound was. I knew Emmanuel was gone. You know, I, I know. Again, we're we're twenty years away from those events, and honestly, you're speaking about them almost as if this had happened in the last year. So I, I know the impact. I know the love that you had for Chris. It's it's evident, and yeah. you know, I, I I get to see you. Everybody else, you know, only hears your words and your voice and your tears coming through but um i'm curious if you've ever heard of emdr you ever heard of that mm -mm. and i've probably mentioned it on previous shows but uh I'll, I'll go ahead and mention it again and it's something that i do in therapy it, it stands for eye movement desensitization reprocessing okay and literally when i explain it to clients i always use a car wreck as my example so somewhat fitting here but usually if uh, i'll use it as uh -oh. if you or i were in the car wreck okay so what i would have you do and and really what emdr is doing is kind of mimicking the bilateral stimulation that we have when we're in uh rim sleep okay so your eyes are twitching back and forth it's when your brain's finding the proper file or folder to put information away in so when you're stating that I'm triggered by the sounds of his mother's voice. Like I can still hear that. That haunts me. Um, that is one of those target images that we would try to desensitize in you. And it's not so that you, you'll never forget these events. Okay. Even if we desensitize you to them, you'll still remember them. But the weight that they carry inside of your heart is a lot different. So wow. what I would do is... I would have someone, and I use what's called pulsers, and it's like two little vibrating cell phones you just hold in your hands, and it just goes back and forth, left and right, and it's vibrating. You're not thinking about that at all. You're just thinking about the target image and the negative thought that you have about yourself, because that's the only thing that we can really change. So I would have you think on... Uh, Again, I'll, I'll use the example of a car wreck just so we can generalize. If I were in a car wreck and let's say I'm hanging upside down the car and the first thing I think of is I'm unsafe or I'm going to die. You've got an event and a 
and a thought, and they're kind of combined together and they start creating this path where pathways in your brain where it's like, now I don't even want to grab a car handle because I feel I'll be unsafe in that car. Right. So we desensitize and it's almost like thought jumping. I'd have you go for about a minute. Okay. What did you see? Okay. I remember hanging upside down in the car. All right. Stop. What did you see? Okay. I remember the ambulance pulling up. All right. Go again. Stop. What did you see? Okay. I remember being hooked up to the monitors. Stop. Sometimes it'll even go into weird stuff. Like all of a sudden you're back in, you know, high school or whatever. It's like, okay, now I see myself falling off of a, a bike when I was 12 years old and scraping my knee. And it's like, whoa, where did that come from? Um, but we just keep following those paths until you're desensitized. Then we come back and it's like, all right, I want you to think about the same horrible car wreck, but this time, what did you want to believe? And we're not trying to repaint history. We're not trying to make you believe a lie. It, you know, you're going to remember things as they were, but we're trying to create new pathways in the brain. So right. thinking about the car wreck and now thinking I am safe. Right. And that's the reprocessing part. So in your example, I would, I would definitely have you think on the, the screams coming up the elevator. That's, that's a horrible event and it's stuck in your brain. What did you believe about you or that situation at that point? You know, um, and I caution people to really focus on themselves because if, if you said, okay, I, um, I'm thinking he's gone. Okay, well, that's that's factual, and I don't want you to believe that he's not gone when we do reprocessing, right? That's not that's not what we're doing, but maybe it is that I'm going to be alone forever. Maybe that's what he thought, or that I'll never love again, you know, whatever it is, right? And so we desensitize to that, and then we reprocess, and it's like, you know what? I'm still worthy of love. It doesn't change the fact that Chris is gone and you miss him, right? But it means, you know, okay, I am worthy and I'm not going to let the screams that I heard coming up that elevator haunt me forever. And what it really does, I, I actually had EMDR done for me on when I lost one of my best friends 12 years ago. And what it did was like, all I could think of is how I found out um, his funeral and his burial. That's all I could focus on. And Whenever I was able to desensitize to those things and then reprocess, it allowed me to start focusing on who he was and the person that I grew up with and in our life together, not how he went out. And now that he's gone and, and just focusing on, you know, and I know you hate the word, the loss, right? Okay. I don't want to focus on that. I want to focus on his life. I, I wrote six songs together with this guy and you can kind of see oh. my music room back here. <laughs> um, you know, we, we wrote six songs together that year. Uh, one for my daughter, one for his kids. And, you know, that's what I want to focus on. Not that he's no longer here. Right. And I think you owe it to Chris, you know, as well to honor, who he was and always keep that at the forefront, not focusing on him not being here. Right. That was a long story and this is your episode, not mine, but I do encourage you and anyone else who has these memories that, that truly haunt them um, to find, find a therapist who does EMDR. Mm -hmm. And there, there's a really, 
cool video out there on YouTube. They'll show it with eye movement. That's kind of how it was founded. Um, but you don't have to use eye movement. Any bilateral stimulation in the body will help you with this. But there's a video is probably two minutes long. And it's just got like these two really big eyeballs on YouTube <laughs> that starts the video. I encourage everybody to go see it. In fact, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes uh, for people okay. to click on. But anyway. I wanted to just, you know, I know we're kind of getting at the end of our time, but I, I did want to, you know, being 20 years down, I know you had mentioned that I tell it like it happened a year ago and that's true, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't believe it, but this is a much tamer version of my grief. Mm. I, I was, I was not functional. I was, I failed out of school. Um, my group, this impacted me so horribly, horribly. Um, my family was very concerned. Um, I was sleeping. I think I had one shirt of his, one or two that smelled like him. I wore it every day. Um, I refused to shower. I think for days, all I would wear is this shirt. I refused to take it off. I refused to give it up. I would sleep with it. I became obsessed with it. Um, I took, in college, I had his pictures with me everywhere. I had his shirt with me. I had a, a stuffed animal he had given me. Um, I had a shrine, basically, to him in my college dorm, mm. a small shrine. And when we would have things like a fire drill and we had to leave the room, if I thought I forgot something, I would go back in the building for those items. And my friends were like, are you out of your mind? If this was a real fire, you could not have gone back in there. I didn't care. Those, those were, those were my items. Those were, those were Chris. I was not going to leave them. Um, it was awful. Um, I, like I said, I flunked out of college, but they were very understanding. They let me kind of take leave and come back and try again. And I graduated just fine. Um, but I remember I was having constant panic attacks to where I had to leave class. But I had found this group called WidowNet. And for the listeners out there, I believe it's still out there. I need to check, but it's called WidowNet.com. And it's specifically for widows, widows and widowers. I was their youngest member mm. <laughs> at seven at nineteen twenty, So they saw me as their little baby. And, um, I became very close to one woman and I had called her and she had said, I had called her cause I was freaking out. I was panicking. I couldn't breathe. She said, all we're going to do is breathe together for the next minute. Your goal is just to get through the next minute on the phone with me. We're not going to think about the next five minutes, the next hour, the rest of the evening. We are literally going to breathe through this next minute together. And we did that for about 10 minutes straight and counted minute by minute. That's how bad my grief was at one point. Mm. I had thoughts of suicide. I had, it was horrible. And I just, I guess just to people out there, I know how fresh and raw and awful that grief is. 
it's not that it over time it becomes you will be functional again you will whether you want to or not you become functional you have to in a way if you choose to stay on this earth and choose to be there for the people left in your life you'll be functional again it's not the same those losses losses <laughs> change you forever but you'll be functional again and at first i remember feeling guilty feeling guilty for being functional feeling feeling guilty for being happy i remember feeling feeling guilty for you know going out the first time and like laughing and and enjoying myself and how could i be happy how could i laugh how could I go out and actually have a good time with a friend today? I'm supposed to be mourning still. It had been two years. And 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 that's okay too. You know, it's it's all a process. It's all but but I remember feeling guilty about feeling better. And and those feelings are gonna happen for everybody, but it, it's okay. It's it's okay to feel guilty about those things too. But at some point, you have to kind of let that guilt go. Um, and just like you said, remember, try to shift your feelings and your focus to, you know, the, the, the positive impact they had on your life and not the trauma it brought on, right? But... I went from not being able to breathe and having someone literally count minutes with me to I have a job, I have children, I'm functioning, you know, I have friends, I have a social life. Yeah, it took 20 years to get here. Um, and I had all of this before 20 years, but I mean, I still cry and grieve for him today. Um, it's not the same. It's not as fresh and it's not as raw, but I function. You will too. And it just takes sadly time, hmm. time. Yeah. Time is not the thing that people want to hear, especially when there's a, a very new death that they're dealing with. And, but unfortunately it's true. And yeah. I will go ahead and say for anybody listening that time does not heal all wounds. I, I don't it buy doesn't. it. Doesn't no, not at all. It doesn't heal. I don't mm -hmm. think anything heals anything completely. Um, no, I, I don't agree with that quote whatsoever. Time heals. It doesn't heal, but it just it it transforms. You mm -hmm. could say it yeah. transforms. It heals. Time transforms wounds, but it doesn't heal. Yeah. You know. Well said. Yeah, I, I think things do change. And it's, uh, sometimes it's so, so slow, mm -hmm. um, that progress. I, you know, I, I see some clients weekly, some bi-weekly, some once a month, some whenever they need me. And those people that I see, you know, every other week or once a month, they'll come in and it's like, wow, you've really, really progressed in a great way. And they're like, really? 
I'm like, yeah, but I, I see you like, you know, every other week, once a month or whatever, you see yourself every single day. So you don't see this progress that you're making. Right. I do. And and I call that the grandfather effect. You know, what's a grandfather say when he hasn't seen his grandchildren in forever? <laughs> oh my, my, how much you've grown. Right. So I, I think it's the same, same way, but uh, we don't see that progress in ourselves just because we see ourselves every day in the mirror. Just like I'm probably getting way older than I want to believe, but I see myself every day. So I don't see it. But when I see my daughter, you know, once a month or once every few weeks, she will, she'll remind me. <laughs> so, awesome. yeah, but, uh, I don't, I don't know. You've, you've, uh, really shed a lot of light into your loss and, um, in, in your grief journey, but I'm curious, what else might we be missing here? Like what else would you tell everyone or, or what else would you say about Chris? That poor kid. And I say kid, because that's how I remember him. God, he went through a lot. He went through so much. He, um, he, um, he didn't have very supportive parents. I mean, his mom did the best she could. Um, and I don't want to speak ill of them. I really don't. Um, she was always sweet to me. She really was. Um, but she, she had like a gambling problem. His father, honestly, just wasn't a very good person. But I think, you know, he wasn't treated very well as a child. You know, it kind of, the chain kind of continues, right? Once you have that happen. He um, he didn't have a lot of confidence about himself. He, you know, suffered a lot of trauma and mental abuse and all of that from his father. But you... You would never be able to tell. You would never have guessed it just having a conversation with him or interacting with him. It just, you it never came across. He just seemed like the happiest go lucky person. It, it just, it didn't seem to affect him. You know, I mean, once you kind of got talking to him, you know, you could tell it hurt him, but. I feel like there's people that go through things, you know, they go through and everyone has a story, right? Your trauma is different than my trauma, than this person's trauma, than this person's trauma. And it's different degrees of it at different times of our lives. Some people will go through their trauma early. Some people will go through it late. And some people will say, you know what? No, I've had a pretty good, good life. I can't say I've had any trauma at all. And that's great too. But I feel people will go through their through these awful things and it either just completely derails them as a person, you know, derails their outlook on life, the way they see people, the way they see the world, the way they see themselves, the way they treat people, or they just, they push harder. They push more. They, they desire more. They, they work harder to build better relationships to, to pursue more in their lives and to treat people better, you know, for example, the people that say, well, I want to be the parent I never had. Chris would have definitely been the parent he didn't have. Mm -hmm. And just, I just wish 
people would push to try to do that more. You know, don't, you know, you, you can't let your past like eat you alive. At some point you have to just kind of, you know, if you need help, get the help, process it, process that anger, process that trauma, process the sadness, process the pain, feel it, let it go. But then you got to kind of just enough's enough. Life is short, whatever I've left of it. You know, I'm not going to carry it on to my, into my next relationships. I'm not going to carry it into my career. I'm not going to carry it into the way I raise my children or the way I interact with people or the dreams I go after, you know, I'm just going to choose at some point to not let it eat up the rest of my life. And that's how Chris was. Hmm. He just decided, even though it was awful, he was going to try to make other people laugh and be the funniest guy in the room. And you he would never share the awful things his family didn't said to him. You know, he would always try to focus on everyone else's pain and what they're going through. And, you know, I am, I don't want to get into myself too much, but I had a complicated relationship with my father and um, I didn't see him for a long time. And he came back into my life when I was 18 and he encouraged me because my father's much older. Is, he passed away last year, but he was old and not in the greatest health. And he just said, look, you are your own person. I don't, I did. I wasn't there to witness your trauma. I don't, I can't feel your feelings. I don't know what you went through specifically because I wasn't there, but from what you've told me, you know, I know what you've been through but your dad is not in good health. You don't know how long he's going to be around. If you have any space in your heart at all to at least see him and maybe possibly somehow forgive him, I think you should. But this is just me being your loving partner and seeing things like from a devil, devil's advocate point of view. And just giving you my input. Hmm. In the end, no matter what you do, I'm going to support you. But I don't want you to be so blinded on one end that you're not seeing the other end. And what I see is a man that desperately wants to fix his relationship with his daughter. And he may not have much time left. And I'm so grateful that he did. That he Um. Had he not, I may not, I may not have ever talked to my dad again. And um, that would have been one of those, like I said, one of those traumatic, you know, trauma and you just decided to let it eat up the rest of your life. And I did, I met with my father and we healed a lot of wounds and a lot of forgiveness happened and I ended up having a pretty decent relationship with my father before he passed, hmm. but it was, it's because Chris pushed me. He saw the good in him when I couldn't. Wow. Well, let me ask you one last question before I close us out here. But, um, whenever you're gone, what do you think, what do you hope people say about you? <laughs> well, 
Um, going back to me real quick with my dad, I'll just go ahead and spit it out because it'll make more sense now. When my parents divorced, they divorced when I was six. My father, he's from the Middle East. He kidnapped me and my sister and took us to the Middle East for four years um, away from my mom. So that's where that kind of came from. And um, it made the national news. We were on the run. Um, He ended up having a really bad stroke while we were there. And he ended up bringing us back in 1990. Sorry, we were taken 19. We were brought back in 1995. Yeah, 1995. He was arrested at DFW Airport, sentenced 10 years in federal prison, but uh, got out on four for good behavior. So, you know, I've kind of been dealing with trauma right from the get-go. So that happened when I was six. And, um, you know, while we were there... um, he didn't really have childcare for us lined up, as you can imagine, being kidnapped and kind of not knowing what to do with us right away. So at six years old, I was taking care of a three-year-old um, for a good two, three months before he could find someone to take care of us. And as you can imagine, not a lot of six-year-olds know how to take care of three-year-olds, but uh, you know, I made it work. Um, and so then we were brought back. And while we were there, you know, you start asking, well, where's mommy? Where's mommy? And we were just told for a while, well, she's going to join us eventually. You know, don't worry. Well, then eventually he just kind of told us that she had died. Mm. She was dead. And this is our new life now. And this is where we're going to stay. And he had remarried and while we were there and they had a son. And so you kind of just accept that this is your life now. While my mom was back here in the U.S., frantically trying to find a way to get us back, um, had hired a company to try to kidnap us back. Um, didn't work. She went to Pakistan herself with my stepdad, um, were caught by the government and asked to leave. So she had to come back empty handed without her daughters. She had spent six months, you know, under some pretty, intense therapy, dealing with that. Well, you know, then we did end up coming back. He gets arrested. So at 10 years old, they're literally ripping me off of my father, arresting him in front of me. And then it's, oh, well, now you're going to go back to your mom. Oh, well, wait, she didn't die? Mm -hmm. No, she didn't die. She's very much alive. And now she's remarried and has two sons of her own. And this is your new family. So I've kind of, you know, that happened. And then, I, you know, Chris passed away. Um, so that was the complication with my father. Um, after he got out of prison, he wanted to see me. And I just wasn't ready to see him for a while. I needed time to process everything that had happened with the kidnapping. And then Chris passed away. And then I got into this toxic, abusive marriage that I kept myself stuck in for 14 years Um, because I didn't even really know I was being abused for so long. So anyways, back to your question, what I would want people to say is that even despite everything, I try to keep going. 
I tried to keep going. I didn't give up. I had moments, you know, I had moments where I was weak, you know. Um, but I, I, I try to keep going and be there for my friends and my family. Um, I tend to give more than I should usually to people because I've been a nurturer from the very beginning, you know, having to take care of my sister at such a young age. Um, I've been in survive, survival mode since I was six years old. Um, but I would want people to just say that she was a fighter. Hmm. She tried, she kept going. Um, no matter what life threw at her, she kept going. And I wasn't the best mom at times. I wasn't the best daughter at times. I wasn't the best sister at times, but I tried. I really did try. And that I always, from the bottom of my heart, wanted the best for people. Well, that that says a lot about you and your character. You know, just a, a, a fighter and someone that loves deeply. And, you know, as, as they state, you know, when we love deeply, um, especially in loss, it hurts deeply. Yeah. Sheena, thanks so much for being with us. And, uh. I, I really just thank you for sharing all of your stories with us and um, just opening up your life to uh, everyone that's listening. Sorry, they got kind of long. No, <laughs> I tend to talk no. much. <laughs> no, you're you're right on time. So it's um, I, I appreciate hearing all that, and and maybe we'll bring you on again in in the future at some point sure. and just check in with you six months, maybe a year down the road bring you back on and just see where are you now in your grief journey? Has it changed for you? So I love that, Brad. Thank you. Yeah. And listeners, thanks for joining in again on the grief observed podcast. I'll have Sheena's email in the show description, as well as that uh, link to the YouTube video on EMDR. And uh, if you want to be on the, the show, just send me an email at grief at gmail.com. We appreciate you listening and we will catch you next time. <laughs>